Since 1937, Ducks Unlimited has been the leader in waterfowl conservation with over 16 million acres of habitat conserved. DU supporters and volunteers have led the charge to fill the skies with waterfowl today, tomorrow, and forever. You too can play a role in leaving a legacy for the future of waterfowl hunting. To find an event near you or to join our volunteer team, go to www.ducks.org volunteer. Ducks Unlimited, conservation for a continent. Hello and welcome to the Standard Sportsman Podcast, where your hosts Brent Birch and Kaysen Short will discuss, debate, and detail trending topics within the sport of duck and goose hunting. Brent and Kaysen have over 80 years combined chasing ducks in Arkansas with a like-minded pursuit of leaving waterfowling better than they found it. Each week, you will hear impactful interviews and engaging guests guaranteed to make you a more informed and effective hunter-conservationist. Thanks for spending time with us today. Now, let us jump into today's show with the guys. All right, guys, it's Brent Birch back again for another episode of The Standard Sportsman, joined as always by my co-host, Casey Short. We are early in the second split of the Arkansas duck season and uh, in a real mild weather pattern with some people still wondering where the ducks are so um, today case is going to introduce our guest but we're going to we're going to talk about some of this where the ducks are and paper ducks and all this other jazz that uh, hunters continue to question as the time time goes along so Kaysen why don't you go with it yeah man I'm, I'm excited today to uh to get this guest on here had came highly recommended for some friends uh biologists in the in the industry that know a lot and are very opinionated but are kind of reserved with voicing those opinions so i hope we can can dive into what we call paper ducks and figure out where they are and why we aren't seeing them but joining us today is dave ray dave welcome to the show thank you very much tell us a little bit uh about your background i know you worked with minnesota uh department of natural resources is that right that's correct yeah well i guess i'll go back a little ways i uh I went to uh, Michigan State University and got a, a bachelor's degree in wildlife management. Uh, then I continued my education at Auburn University, uh, where I worked on a, I did a project on green wing teal down in southwest Louisiana, uh, where I was looking at the, the body composition of those birds and uh, doing time activity budgets on them. Um, after that, I, I Moved around a little bit. I worked in Louisiana for the Fish and Wildlife Service for a couple of years. Uh, and then I, I moved to um, North Dakota and I worked for um, Northern Prairie Wetland Research Group up in uh, Jamestown, North Dakota for a year uh, before I landed a job with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources as a waterfowl research biologist. I worked there for 25 years as a research biologist and then uh, Moved over and became the area wildlife manager for the for the area where I live. So I was an area wildlife manager for the last five years of my career. The Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Waterfowl hunters deserve to have a set of waders that can excel year in and year out throughout the duration of the season. So Sika Gear set out to build the best pair of waders ever. Constructed from Gore-Tex Pro Laminate, the face fabric offers added durability and is breathable in active working conditions while completely sealing out the elements. Importantly, they proudly stand behind all of their Delta Zip waiter features with their 100% serviceable guarantee. 
And I'm speaking from experience as I have sent my original pair of Sika waders from the 2018 season back twice without a hiccup. Engineered to outwork, outlast, and outhunt everything else in the market, the Delta Zip Wader from Sika Gear is the gold standard for reliability. The Chatham Jacket from Tom Beckby features the durable, weatherproof, 8-ounce wax shelter cloth shell that develops a great-looking patina with use. I've actually worn this jacket the last couple of seasons and appreciate the shorter cut to it so it fits great inside my waders. It's also a really good weight for most Arkansas days of field. So if you like to mix a little vintage look with your technical gear waders, this is the jacket. You can find the jacket online at TomBeckby.com. You can also find it in their brick and mortar locations in Wilson, Arkansas, Birmingham, Alabama, and the new store in Oxford, Mississippi. Got you. Um, and so th- we'll just go ahead and dive into some of these heavy topics. Uh, w- with all that background, you've obviously seen the flyway from one end to the other. You have, if I understand correctly, some concerns about quality of habitat and how it relates to AHM or adaptive harvest management. So for everyone that's listening, AHM is the the model that we use to set season framework, correct? That's correct. Yes. Okay. Now you, you talked a little bit about habitat, really habitat degradation, both kind of on the U S side and Canadian side, as it relates to AHM. Um, let's, let's dive into that a little bit here. Your thoughts on that. Well, you know, I think that the idea of adaptive harvest management is, is a good one. So the idea is that you, uh, you set regulations based on certain criteria, and then you look at the harvest that, that comes about. And, uh, after you've looked at that harvest, then you, um, use some models and try to adapt your heart, your, uh, waterfowl regulations to what you saw from from the previous things that you've done so you're you're constantly adapting uh your harvest to what's going on in the actual um real world and that's that's good there's that's that's very scientific the problem is is that uh in my opinion some of the some of the mechanisms that we use to get the data uh that's used in adaptive harvest management aren't necessarily very good. And what I what I mean by that is the two main things that go into the adaptive harvest management to determine hunting regulations are uh, the May breeding population, which is the, the United States Fish and Wildlife Service flying of the prairies and counting the ducks and getting an estimate of the number and the number of ponds that are out there. And I, I think that there's some problems with both of those. Okay, so you're you're talking about what we refer to as the the B pop and the May pond count. So for everyone Correct. listening who, who sees those numbers when they're put out in the summer, you can kind of understand exactly what we're talking about here. So what what do you think are the problems with how those surveys are done? Well, I mean, first off, we have to go back and think about what what why I think there's a problem. So you know, across the the what we call the prairie pothole region, which is that huge area of grass and wetlands that ducks nest in. Uh, it goes kind of from Minnesota all the way over to Montana and then north and, and through the prairie provinces and then up into, into Alaska. There's been huge changes in that area over the last 50 to, to 70 years. So this, 
the the May survey started in the 1950s, and now it's 2023. So that's like 70 years. And in that time, habitat in that area has changed dramatically, and almost none of it for the good of ducks. And yet, when we look at the, the population estimate, the population estimate now is as high or higher than it's ever been. So my question would be, how could that be? Yeah, that's that's what's interesting. And, and uh, you know, I don't know how much the the modern day duck hunter pays attention to the the details of all that. I think they see the the big ducks unlimited or the big Delta waterfowl announcement and and just see a you know a number percentage up percentage down and don't necessarily equate what all goes into that and what's impacting that but you know offline you had some pretty interesting numbers pretty scary numbers actually you know as as far as what we're looking at of the decline of the habitat in the PPR so why don't you you know run down some of those you know kind of numbers cuz you're talking about how much less grass there is now compared to like the 60s and 70s and and some of those cuts in 70s you know there's been millions and millions of acres of grass and wetlands lost and so you know there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 50% less grass than there was back in the 50s and 60s and probably about the same amount of wetlands lost so if you've lost that much habitat it just seems pretty uh pretty strange to me that we could be looking at populations that are greater or the same as what they were at that point. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that makes sense. It's to me, it's common sense, but we, you know, we keep hearing that, you know, that we're, we're living the heyday of duck numbers. And even this year, you know, the surveys come out and it's lower bee pop, lower maypon, but then you get some arbitrary number out of North Dakota that, Oh well, this particular area was up eighty percent, but right. when you look well, at the details, it's eighty percent divers. It's not mallards. It's I'm not saying it's a concerted that, effort. Go ahead. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, the other thing that you have to remember is that you know there's a relatively small proportion of the ducks in the continent come from North Dakota. So even if they have a good year in North Dakota, you know they may have four to five million breeding pairs, but they're supposedly 35 or 40 million breeding pairs in the continent. So just because North Dakota has a good year doesn't mean that that there's going to be a lot of ducks made. Do you have an idea what percentage of ducks come from the U.S. side of the border? I don't have that at my fingertips, but I would say less than 30%. Okay. Because Brent and I had, had some conversations earlier this year and heard some different opinions on, and it's an opinion no one, I guess, really knows for sure, but kind of heard some differing opinions on on what came from where you know i mean if you look at the if you look at the size of the of the area that we're talking about in north and south dakota and the western part of minnesota and a little bit of montana and then look at what's in manitoba saskatchewan alberta there it's pretty small compared yeah, definitely to the is. amount of area up there definitely so, is when you when you consider the the amount of acreage but you know, another topic we talked about offline too, and this is this is on the U.S. side because you know there's not a necessarily a cohesive uh, treatment of wetlands on one side of the border versus the other. I mean, we obviously have Swamp Buster here in the United States; they do not have that in Canada. Um, 
but there's you know the there was a big loss of CRP ground um, in the kind Huge. of early 2000s. Why don't you elaborate elaborate on that a little bit? Because uh, that was that number was staggering. Well, that number was pretty staggering. You know, there was um, several million acres, um, maybe up to 15 million acres of CRP that was lost uh, in the early 2000s, uh, and so. There's a lot of grassland that that went away, and yet in the late 2000s, all of a sudden the breeding population went up to higher than it's ever 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 been since the 1950s. So you got to wonder, you know, was CRP really important to ducks? Is habitat really important to ducks? And in my mind, yeah, it was. It's really important to ducks. So the question is, is what happened? How did the number of ducks in 2005 double when when we lost all those millions of acres of grass? And I don't have an answer for it. What else, what could possibly have happened that would make our duck numbers go up that high? I don't, I don't know that anyone has a direct answer to that. I think that's what makes some of this stuff kind of alarming when it does make so. So there was a there's a biologist in Canada uh, by the name of Ray Alisoskis, and he's done some work using banding data and uh, looking at birds. And one of the things that he found out is that the mallard population, the the sex ratio of mallards in the mallard population has changed over time. So when the when the breeding population survey was set up, there was the assumption that that there was half males and half females in the population in the springtime. And so when they fly the survey, they count the number of, of paired ducks. And so each pair of ducks is counted as a pair and they count the number of lone drake mallards. So, and this goes for other ducks too, but the number of lone drakes and any, any lone drake in a group of five or less is also counted as a pair. Well, if suddenly you're, you're, Drake to hen ratio changes dramatically, and you're still counting those all those lone drakes as pairs. There's a pretty good chance that you're overcounting the population. Sure. Do you do you have that number? Do you know what Ray uh, assumed or, or figured the ratio to be? I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was somewhere like seventy to eighty percent drakes. Oh, wow. And if you, you know, when I go out in the springtime and, and I see ducks in ponds and I count them, there's definitely way more drakes than there are hens. So now I haven't done a, a research project on this and I haven't looked at it, but, you know, Ray, uh, Ray's numbers were pretty dramatic. You know, he, he looking at numbers, he saw that uh, the population has really changed. Yeah, and that makes you think or makes you wonder. If if it is that far out of whack, um, and this gets back to AHM because it spits these models out too, but you know we've got two hens in the limit in in right. Arkansas and most of the Mississippi Flyway or all the Mississippi Flyway. So you know it makes you wonder if if, <laughs> if it is off that much, you know. So we've got a lot of drakes running around that that don't have a hen to mate with. Um. Makes you wonder why we're still shooting two hens in a limit. Um, it's kind of kind of odd logic. Well, there's a lot of people that would would argue that hunting doesn't 
affect breeding populations. My opinion is that that's not correct. I, I think that when you have really, really high populations, like maybe what we had in the 50s and 60s and 70s, it may be that, that at that point, hunting doesn't really affect it. But as your population continues to decline, then suddenly hunting does become more of a, of a factor whereby when you shoot hens, it, it may affect the population more. Sure. You would think, I mean, you would think so. Just, I mean, it's just logic. Now, you know, I know a, a lot of them stand on, on this, on that mantra that, you know, adaptive and or additive and compensatory. Sorry. Uh, and compensatory. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So that, but all that, but it's hard to, it's hard to understand why at least I'm not saying they're wrong. You know, they don't, you know, that, that stance is wrong, I'm, but why aren't we maybe looking at it or evaluating it that, man, we're, we're in a, we're in a struggle spot and we got a biologist in Canada saying we're out of whack 70, 80% drakes to hens. Maybe we should step back and look at that again versus just going 60 days, six ducks, two hens go. Yeah, I, I absolutely hundred percent agree. I think that uh, we really should, should do a little bit of research and figure this out and maybe in the meantime, be a little bit more conservative because, you know, things definitely don't look like they're getting better. In fact, uh, even, know. even the May survey, you know, is down almost 50% on mallards from what it was 10 years ago. So you would think that if you're, if you know, if your May survey, right or wrong, if it's saying that it, that we're down almost 50%, shouldn't we, do something a little more conservative. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like you definitely, you don't see it in the field. You, too many hunters are wondering what's happening and we keep being told everything's fine. Just keep plugging away. But, but we see it too. I know working with, with Paul Link and some of his studies, you know, the hen mortality rate on birds with transmitters is almost three times what AHM accounts for. And then on the, on the white front side, you know, I think AHM assumes every adult female white front will nest, but we see numbers much lower than that. So obviously there's some some data issues. There's some we are not putting in the quality of numbers that I that I think most people assume that we're putting into AHM. I think that that's correct. And I'm not and sure how how good the models that they're using are anyway. So yeah. I don't know how predictive they are. So when you when you put those two together, that the models aren't all that predictive and that the data isn't all that good, then you really are sort of walking on murky ground, I think. Yeah. Well, that's I mean, I've heard it said, you know, garbage in, garbage out. You put in numbers that aren't accurate through a model that's not as predictive. You're going to have really bad results. Um, real quick, I kind of want to back up and have you elaborate a little bit on additive and compensatory just for our listeners that aren't familiar with those terms. Okay, so so the terms are additive and compensatory. So, you know, if uh, if we're talking hunting here, so if hunting is strictly additive, that means that every hen that you shoot while you're out hunting takes a hen out of the population, out of the breeding population. On the other hand, if if hunting is 100% compensatory, that means that every hen that you shoot is actually a hen that was going to die or, or a hen would have died anyway. And so there's a lot of death that occurs as the birds fly up and down the, the flyway. 
there's a lot of death that occurs when the birds are nesting. Uh, predators kill kill birds. Birds hit wires. Birds get sick and die. And so the thought is that if you lower the population through hunting, then a lot of that mortality that would have occurred otherwise doesn't occur. So so you're basically taking birds that are going to die anyway. That would be the compensatory thought. So, so it's pretty ahead, odd that hunting is somewhere in between because, you know, I may shoot a bird in, in Minnesota that if I didn't shoot it, there there's a slight chance that it would hit a wire or it would it would die of a disease on the way down. So some of what what we kill in hunting is is definitely compensatory. So every bird we shoot doesn't take a, a bird out of the breeding population. However, I I don't believe that that it's strictly compensatory as well. And in fact, so in other words, if I shoot a hen in Minnesota, some other hen is going to survive. But if I pass on that hen, some other hen is going to die. So that I don't think is true either. So I think there's some in between. Is that clear? Yes. Or is that just making it muddy? Okay. No, so, no, I, I think it's clear. So the, um, in my belief, uh, as your population comes down, hunting becomes more and more additive because there's not, not additional birds in the population that, uh, to be, that, that will die. Um, so if you think of a, of a certain amount of nesting habitat and say that, that when the hens come back, there's only, only enough room for 200 hens to, to nest in an area. So if you have 400 hens that leave that area and go south, only 200 of them that come back can, can actually nest in that area. So the other 200 are surplus hens that, that could be killed and it doesn't affect the population. Whereas if you only have 200 hens and they leave the, pop, the, the breeding grounds and, and they come back, none of those are surplus hens. So any one that you kill is actually one that you take away from the population. Okay. Now, so I've got a, a kind of a defining question there. Would you, would you say or would you agree that there is a sliding scale of additive versus compensatory the later in the season we hunt. Yes. Okay. Could you, could you uh, elaborate or explain why? So the later in the season that we hunt, the less and less chance that the, that the birds have to die of something other than hunting. And so if you kill birds later in the season, you know, if I kill a bird in Minnesota, that bird still has to, you know, if I didn't kill it, it would still have to travel all the way through the, the flyway, go down, survive for the winter, and fly all the way back. However, if, if it's already down in Arkansas and it's the last week of January, chances are it's already paired and it's ready to come back and it's in pretty good shape. So chances are that bird would live to, to nest. And if it's shot, well, then its chances of nesting are zero. Gotcha. That was a little bit of a loaded question because I, I feel the same way, but we seem to have a contingency of people who would, would hunt till Valentine's Day, excuse me, Valentine's Day if they were allowed to. Um and I think I think there's some harm in, in hunting as late as we do, especially in Arkansas. But that's my personal opinion. 
when we originally when they originally set up the hunting seasons, one of the reasons why January 15th was chosen as a date to stop hunting was because that was when mallard hens began to really pair. And so it takes a lot of effort to pair. When you're on the when you're hunting in Louisiana or Arkansas, a lot of times you'll see one hen flying around with 15 drakes chasing it. And that's a, a part of the whole mating system is that all those drakes chase them. The hens do a lot of uh, courtship behavior uh, and eventually they choose a drake. But once they choose a drake, they've chosen that drake and they can go about feeding and all that. And it takes a little bit of energy for the drake to defend her and keep the other drakes away. But for the hen, she gets ready and gets ready to migrate. So if you shoot that drake after they're paired up, then that hen has to go through that whole uh, whole energy costly business of trying to find another mate again. And so that was why originally the date was set at January 15th to, to stop hunting. Yeah. And my recollection is that back when we, or when it was changed, does, you know, that factored into uh, all the biologists had a common stance. January 15th needs to be the cutoff. But then when, and if I recall, it was Mississippi and it was Trent Lott. Yes. That, uh, that listened to his constituents and started going against the science and going with, for my constituents to be happy, for the duck hunters to be happy, we need to hunt to the end of January because that's when it's cold now. Correct. Is my recollection correct? Your recollection is correct. Yeah. And the thing that, you know, what everybody sees is they hunt until the last day of the hunting season. And then they go home and when they go back out to pick up their decoys, nobody's hunted their lease for, for two weeks and suddenly there's ducks all over it. And they think, well, all the ducks just arrived. Well, I'm not sure that that's really true. What, what, what happens often is that those birds are sitting in areas that aren't hunted. And then once the hunting season ends, then they disperse. And, and so they are kind of out there. Yeah, we run into that in Arkansas too. Another factor of that here is as soon as the season's over, a lot of people let their water go uh, to start getting ag crop, you know, ag fields ready for for spring and planting season. Yep. They're ready to start working up ground if they didn't work it up in the fall, which is also another uh, huge issue here. But but um, but uh, let's circle back just real quick on on that hand. Okay, let go me ahead. Say thing though, um, I don't want to put all the blame on the southern states because you know, not too long after the the southern states opened and stayed late then then the northern states decided that we needed to open a week early too to compensate for what the southern states had done and so we moved our season back a week early now the reason that the season wasn't supposed to open till october 1st was to protect breeding hens which are the most vulnerable right after they're they finished uh, breeding they go into molt and they're just coming out of molt about the middle of september and uh so, you know, the original biology was to not open the season until October 1st so that those breeding hens had a chance to recoup some of the, their lost energy. Well, we moved our season back to, to a week early into the middle of September often, uh, and now we kill a bunch of those, those uh, hens that are super vulnerable. And those are, our, our, those are the breeding hens. Those are the ones that were actually successful. So, you know, there's some, some blame to go around. Yeah, it's uh, not quite resource first 
thinking. No. <laughs> if, you, if you really think about it, it's it's all trying to satisfy the hunter, which I mean, that's an element. I mean, you got to have satisfied hunters to be able to fund a lot of, of the, the conservation efforts and the research and all of that. But um, let me ask you th- this real quick on circling back to the hen uh, when, you know, in say January 25th, pair comes in, drop the drake, let the hen go. When she starts that that process of trying to find another drake, how far is that going to delay her from, you know, how long is it going to take her to find one? How long is that going to delay her before she starts moving north, uh, you know, headed back home? What, what You know, maybe expand a little bit on that impact of that late well, January drake harvest. The, the impact comes in in the fact that not only does she maybe have to delay her migration, but she also, um, hen mallards in particular, bring most of what they, what the energy that they use to lay eggs with them to the breeding ground. And so if she's in poorer shape, when she arrives on the breeding ground, she won't be able to lay as many eggs in her first clutch. And the first clutch is probably the most important clutch there is for these birds. And so the real impact is a a later nesting date could be because of because of trying to find a new hen or a, a new drake, and b the uh, the lack of of nutrients in her body that she brings with her because she had to start migration sooner or uh, she had to start migration after she paired up and with less uh, nutrients in her body. Interesting. So I, I've heard a number thrown out there that it could set a hen back as much as, as 30 days. It, does that sound I, I outlandish really, to you? Or? I can't tell you on that one. Um, the, I don't know about that, that uh, whether hens will delay their migration. Migration is, is set by body condition and also by the length of, of the daylight in the day. Okay. So, so when, it, when it's time to go, a lot of them just go. And whether they're ready or not, they go and hopefully they can pick up more resources along the way. But if they're if they're in better body condition when they leave, their chances of making it to the breeding grounds improves. Their chances of of having a good clutch of eggs improves. Um, what it may, you know, and you're right, it probably will delay birds if they arrive on the breeding ground without enough energy to lay eggs. Then they have to spend time rebuilding those those energy reserves and i don't know how long it could take yeah well so in that example it was uh as it was told to me that was probably an extreme outlier but as much as 30 days and then you would run into issues could run into issues with you know flight ready birds the next fall and if you did have an early freeze that the whole the whole clutch could be lost because they couldn't initiate fall migration so it was kind of an extreme example but just an example of what what can happen because you shot a Mallard Drake the last day of season in Arkansas. Right. Um, so I, I kind of want to tie all this back. We, we started off with AHM, and this has been great information. Um, but talk to us a little bit about your concerns with the method and timing of, of Maypon counts. Well, you know, the Maypon counts, they, they fly the survey, uh, and they look out the side of the airplane. and they estimate a certain distance from the edge of the, of the, you know, the transect is what's directly underneath the airplane as it's going straight. Correct. So 
they estimate a certain distance out and they count every water body that they pass past uh, as they fly that survey. Well, historically, most of those water bodies were actually wetlands. But today, due to uh, wetland drainage, due to tiling especially, which is uh, for those people that have never been up on the prairies, they put uh, big plastic tubes under the ground that uh, take water in out of the ground and, uh, and transfer that water to a ditch. And then the ditch transfers it to the river. And the, so it gets the water off of, off of fields very quickly. So, however, the tiles don't start working until all the frost is out of the ground. So over the course of the winter, it's cold up here and the ground freezes down two to three to four feet. And so in the springtime, when the snow melts, there's a lot of water sitting on top of the ground, and all of that water tends to end up in old wetlands. And so it's sitting there in these wetlands. Well, often when they, when they fly the survey, the water is, is melted, but the soil hasn't melted. So as they fly past, there's these ponds that are basically just water ponded on top of the ground that they count. Well, two weeks later, after the, often after the survey's done, all those ponds disappear. So those ponds really don't have a whole lot of value to, to ducks. Not only do they, do they disappear, but even if they were to stay there, just a, a depression in the mud with water in it really doesn't provide ducks with very much for food. So they count all those, those, um, they count all those ponds, and yet, I'm not sure that the ponds really mean anything anymore because a large percentage of the ponds that they count are just these drained wetlands. And yet that's about half of what goes into setting the regulations for docks. That's really interesting. I'd never, I'd never heard that. That seems like something we would discuss more or more hunters would be aware of. Uh, that's a pretty legitimate concern. I mean, um, we think that the prairie potholes are still full of, all these thousands and thousands of potholes. Well, you know, it, they aren't. That if you go to North Dakota or look at pictures of North Dakota, you know, it's pretty much ag field after ag field after ag field. And there are places where there's wetlands, and there are places where there's wetlands that are that are still have some vegetation around them. But even the ones that have vegetation around them, if they're in a farmer's field. You know, of what value do they really have to waterfowl? Because there's no grass there for the ducks to nest in. Yeah. Well, and in particular, species like like pintail, uh, it's even more devastating for them. Yeah, for pintails, it's really devastating. So the Standard Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. I've always been a fan of Yeti coolers and their drinkware. Now they've come out with a loadout 30 go box. Uh Brent, did you know they're also making those in a 15 and a 60 now? I did. I've been a big fan of the 30. Uh, I actually carry around our our mobile podcast gear in one. And then I've got another one that I use during duck season that I don't have to worry about any of my gear getting wet or dusty and dry when it when hadn't rained in a while. It's an amazing product. Yeah. So I, I use them a bunch. Uh, same deal. I've got a 30 that stays in the boat, uh, carry camera gear and all sorts of equipment in it. And it's nice to know that Clients, dogs, you know, nothing's going to get it wet, going to tear it up. But the the 15 has really found a spot in my arsenal as well. I switched from hunting with clients to hunting with my kids pretty frequently. 
and it's great to to use that 15 as an ammo box so i've got all the kids ammo gauge reducers hand warmers whatever they're going to need in one box and all i've got to do is grab it and i'm ready to take them out in the woods yeah the yeti go box is is definitely the way to go and keep it organized accessible and protected and it's no matter what size you pick it's a must-have for waterfowl season but you know mallards have to have uh all the ducks have to have wetlands with invertebrates in it if they're actually going to make eggs because that's where the nutrients for the eggs come from right 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 yeah i've got a buddy here uh he's a rice farmer uh in south far southeast arkansas uh, that sends me videos from instagram he he keeps up a lot of farming practices up in that part of the world on the ppr and will send videos of you know, running equipment to tr- truly to the very, very edge of a, of a small, you know, little pothole yep. um, and how that's just in each year, it just keeps shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And you're right. That is a, you know, that it's a matrix that our numbers get plugged into the maypons get plugged into a matrix against the B pop and where it charts on that matrix says, whether we get, you know, the, the conservative, the moderate, or the liberal season. And we've obviously been in the liberal season for now, tw- I think it's 27 years now. Um, well, that's that's another thing I have a problem that I have with adaptive harvest management is that, you know, it, like I said, in the concept, you take what you've got and you put them into the matrix and you set a regulation and then you look at what happens and then you change it based on what happens. Well, We've been in the same regulation since 1997. So how is that adaptive? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and and it's, uh, it almost that, seems rubber stamped. Uh, at this the only point. thing that ever changes is occasionally pintails or canvas backs or scop change. Uh, pretty much everything else just stays the same year after year. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of scary. I mean, obviously hunters from our perspective, not knowing how this works and realize there's very complicated formulas and you have to make assumptions because there's no way we could tell. We can't count every duck that gets harvested by a hunter. I uh, can't count every duck. So, you know, there's, there's extrapolation of data and all that, but I mean, hip surveys really make you scratch your head and how they figure out how many ducks are harvested when the, the, the questions you get to answer. So just nebulous. I mean, it's like over 11 or whatever the question is. I mean, how do you, so, I mean, so I, I kill way more than 11 over 11. And how do you, how do you know how many I shoot? Let me discuss, let me discuss that a little bit. So that's a really big misconception is that, uh, is that hunter that the, that the harvest is in any way, shape or form calculated from the numbers you give when they ask you the hip numbers. It's not. Okay, so good. When they ask you, so HIP is Harvest Information Program, and it's when you buy your duck stamp, they ask you how many ducks did you kill last year, and there's what three or four different categories: so zero, one to five, five to ten, or eleven and and more. Well, all that that actually does is to throw your you into a uh, a grouping. So they group uh, people that, that kill more than 11 into one group. They group 
all the people that shoot five to 10 ducks in a second group. They group all the people that shoot one to five ducks in a third group. And they group all the people that shot zero ducks in a, in a last group. And then from each of those groups, they pick a certain number of people to survey that year. So, and the reason is, is because there's not very many people that actually kill 11 or more ducks in a season. There's, there's a lot of people that kill one to five ducks in a season. And so they select a bigger number of people from the one to five group than they do from the 11 and more group. But that doesn't tell them anything about the number of ducks that are killed this year. That just tells them these people killed this many. This is what we're going to sample. So they may take 10,000 people from the one group and, and only 1,000 from the group that kills 11 or more. But at least they know that they've got some people from that smaller group. So then at the end of the season, they send those people a, a card and they ask them, are you willing to, to participate in this survey? If the person sends the card back, then they send them another card that tells them to keep track of all the ducks that they killed. And in the end, they send that in. And they take all of those numbers and put them into a little model and uh, come up with an average number of ducks that are killed in each state. So that's, that's how they do it. They actually get the number of ducks killed by surveying hunters from that year. Uh, and all that the AHM or all that the uh, the hip numbers give you give them is a is a sample to draw from. Okay, well that makes a lot more sense because uh, it's like how in the hell do they figure all that out? Uh, so they figure that out. So then each state gets a number of ducks from that from that survey from the hip survey. Each state gets a number of ducks, total number of total ducks killed. So you they'll send you a, the card and. They don't ask you if you killed any mallards. They don't ask you if you killed any gadwalls. They just ask you, how many ducks did you kill? How many geese did you kill? Uh, and if you said that you hunted woodcock, they may send you a survey asking you how many woodcock you killed. But that, And then when people send that back in, then they take the average of the number from each group and they, they, they come up with a, an, a number of ducks that were killed. And then from that number, and that's the number of ducks that was killed, then they have a different sample where they ask people to cut a wing off, put a wing in an envelope and send it to the wing D. Yeah. yeah. And at wing D, then we look at those wings and we can tell the age and the sex and what species of duck it is. And so then from that survey, they determine what percentage of mallards was killed out of a state, what percentage of wood ducks was killed, what percentage of green wing teal in, in say, Arkansas, what percentage of the ducks, all the ducks in, in Arkansas were killed were mallards. What percentage were wood ducks? What percentage were green wings? What percentage were pintails? And so on. So then they go back to the number that they got from the hip survey, the total number of ducks, and they multiply the number, the percentage of mallards, say, of all the wings that were sent into the wing bee, 80% were mallards. They take that number, multiply it by the total number, and they can tell you how many mallards were killed in the state. Well, that is some uh, awesome insight, and that is not the way most hunters think that all Correct. comes to 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 be so uh that's pretty interesting the hip numbers are sometimes goofy because you know people either don't want to give the numbers because they think that that they're given a weird number or 
sometimes you go in and the guy behind the, the counter doesn't even ask you the questions. They just write them down. You know, they just make up numbers for themselves. So that's a little bit of a bias, but at least now you know that that's the way that it's, it's run. And so, you know, they're not getting a number of, of ducks harvested from your hip information. Yeah. And I would even guess in the modern day duck hunting culture, I would think there's dudes on there that lie and say they, they, they check over 11 because <laughs> they yes. think it's, it's validating them <laughs> as a, a killer. And I, I'm not joking. I think that is, I think that is a thing. I would say that, you know, there's probably hunters that don't send hen wings in to the wing bee because they think that people will think that they're less of a hunter if they shot hens. Well, you know, that all that does is bias our data. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nobody, nobody, we don't release any of that information and, and nobody ever sees any of that information by, from the individual hunters except themselves. So, so I've, I've got a little bit of a, uh, I guess, follow up to that. Do the harvest numbers and how they're estimated now, do they kind of mirror the Lincoln Peterson estimates as far as you know? No. Okay. The, the Lincoln Peterson index, um, I don't know if you're talking about the stuff that they're using banding data to try and get. Yes. Okay. So the Lincoln Peterson index isn't a measure of harvest. It's a measure of, of how many birds are out there. So it's basically a mark and recapture technique. So back when we were, you know, when it was first originally designed, um, a, a guy with the last name of Lincoln and a guy with the last name of Peterson came up with this. And what they did was they went out on a, a area that was fenced and they, they set out some traps and they trapped some rabbits and a rabbit that they trapped, they painted the tail yellow and released it. Well, then two weeks later they went back out and they trapped uh, again and they caught rabbits. And then, they counted the number that had yellow tails and the ones that didn't have yellow tails. And from that, you can figure out what the approximate uh, population of rabbits in that area is. Because you know how many rabbits had yellow tails. Now you know how many you caught, what percentage, and you know what percentage of ones without yellow tails that you caught the second time. So then you just multiply the numbers together and it gives you a, a, an estimate of the number of rabbits that are on the area. So they do the same thing with banding data. They, they put bands on uh, in year one, and then in the next year, they take the number that are, are recaptured and the numbers that are not recaptured. And from that, somehow they figure out what the population is, but it doesn't really give a, a harvest number. Okay. At least standing. Okay. So I guess maybe they're, they extrapolate the difference in population from one year to the next. Maybe that's where I, where I was getting. Yes, that from. they can they can try to try to get get population estimates um, from the Lincoln Peterson. Yes. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, interesting. Well, that yeah, because we've kind of heard different uh, or different explanation a little bit than than that, but that's that's a good. Uh, Good background on that, and, and I, I don't. I don't think most hunters are probably familiar with Lincoln Peter S, Lincoln Peterson estimates, but you know it is another another data set out there uh, that, yes. that's being evaluated. Um, 
But uh, let's talk about you spent some time in Louisiana um, in some of our offline conversation. You you mentioned, you know, the everybody knows the decline in in uh, the success of, of hunting in Louisiana, which has several factors, several factors uh, that are unique to Louisiana, such as, you know, rice fields being converted to crawfish ponds and, and loss of habitat. But but I want to talk about Louisiana. If if habitat changes and all that is what caused Louisiana's decline in, in waterfowl success, because, you know, their their white fronts have left, um, mainly shifted to Arkansas. Um, this kind of ties in with with some of your questioning of some of this data, because if Louisiana lost all these ducks, where did where did they go? Right. <laughs> so. Uh, let's you, let you, let you go on that a little bit. Well, you know, I mean, let's just look at this year, and and I I think I've seen I've seen the Arkansas survey, I've seen the uh, the the Illinois survey, I haven't seen the Missouri survey, but you know, the Illinois survey, the last Illinois survey I saw was from mid December, I believe, or early no, it would have been uh, early December. Uh, and they said all oh, their ducks were leaving. And I saw the Louisiana survey and theirs was the lowest ever. And I saw the Arkansas survey and they said theirs is one of the lowest ever. So where are all those birds? If if they really exist and there's really as many ducks as we as there used to be, shouldn't they be somewhere? And I haven't seen them. I you know the 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 midwinter surveys all seem to be down, down, down. So if there's more ducks than there used to be. They must have gone somewhere, but I don't hear of anybody going anywhere and and seeing these huge numbers of ducks. Do you? No, no. And I and I have friends that uh, hunt in Kansas. Uh, yep. And in, in fact, one of them hunts Kansas Oklahoma border, so they bounce back and forth between too. They don't have any ducks uh, or haven't. Uh, they've picked up some here lately, and Arkansas has picked up some here lately. Seemed like during our split, we did when Illinois was saying that their ducks had left. We definitely picked some up. Uh, our habitat got slightly better because we got a little bit of rain, um, but we definitely picked some ducks up. I've noticed more ducks here as the second split is open than I saw the first split, but it is not a remarkable number, and it's definitely not the number I would think we should be seeing in what is now mid-December. I mean, there's, you know, there's doe ducks in Louisiana because they're so dry, or at least there weren't any. Uh, so, you know... Wouldn't you think that those, at least some of those ducks would be in Arkansas? One would think. And, and I mean, a vast majority of them ought to be there because, you know, there aren't that many that go to Texas. There's, I mean, there's ducks in Texas, but it, Texas just doesn't have the, the water that, uh, say, Arkansas has. And I don't know. It's, it just seems like just about every index that we have to waterfowl numbers is down except for the May survey. I mean, harvest numbers across the flyway are down. Hunter numbers, you know, and then then the other thing that that people always point to is, well, you know, hunter numbers are down. Well, you know, if you look back five years ago, maybe it, it, it's a little more than five years now, but back in around somewhere around uh, 2016 or 2015, Louisiana was killing 1.8 million ducks. And then now they're killing around 500 
thousand ducks, maybe between 500 and 600,000 ducks. And yeah, their hunter population has declined substantially. But is that, did the number of ducks go down because the hunters went down or did the hunter numbers go down because the ducks went down? And I would say in five years, you know, you don't, you don't have half your hunters leave in five years, especially not in Louisiana. Those guys like to hunt. Right. No doubt. No doubt. Well, it's, it's interesting. Cause yeah, that's, that's one of the, you know, the kind of the blame game. Duck hunters want to blame everything, everything else. And, and this myth, this flyway shift myth is, um, it just doesn't hold any water. The, there's no banding. There's no GPS transmitter data that supports it. Um, it's just the, I guess it's the smoke and mirrors of social media that have, have driven that. But yeah, Louisiana ducks aren't, aren't, <laughs> aren't in Arkansas or if no. they are, it's a, it's a reduced number than what, what we should have. Um, it's, it's, it's I mean, you don't have as at. many ducks as you historically had. So, you know what? I don't, I just don't yeah. see where, unless they all have moved all the way to California or something, but why would that happen? But you, that's the thing. You can't hide them, that they would no, show up on a survey. Like You'd think that they would show up somewhere. Yeah. So uh, that, it, that many would have to. Yeah. So, so uh, one of the things that I, that I heard out of the most recent flyway meeting is there seems to be a growing number of, of biologists who we're kind of buying into the, you know, hunter harvest doesn't matter mindset. We can do whatever we want and it's all habitat based on the prairies. Do you feel like that? I mean, obviously not based on what you've said on some of the stuff that we do. So maybe more importantly, do you feel like there are many more people like yourself out there? Um, there, I think that the number of people that feel the same way as I do is growing. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't think that there's a lot of people that are actually making the decisions that feel that way. Uh, you know, I guess you can always say there's nothing, nothing that we can do about it, so we might as well just keep shooting them. But you know, they talk about they talk about this habitat that's not there. They talk about the predators that that eat everything. Well, you know, if you think about it. Say you send a thousand ducks back to the to the to the prairies, a thousand hens. You send a thousand hens back to the prairies, and predators eat seventy or eighty percent of the nests. Well, okay, so now you have two hundred nests, right? Well, if you sent two thousand birds back and predators ate eighty percent of the nests, you'd have four hundred nests. So, I don't get the idea that sending more hens back doesn't help anything well that's been the, the common sense idea that i've had about it every time every time i hear that argument like well you can't tell me that sending twice as many back i mean predators can only eat a certain percentage the more we send back right. the, the better it's going to be that's the just, more you send back the better it's got to be um it has to so, yeah and that, you know there's there's a lot of different hypotheses out there I, i've heard it say that that when you kill more ducks they there's some sort of density dependence that kicks in and and so the fewer the ducks they are the the more or the fewer the hens that go back to the nesting grounds the more productive those hens will be well i've never actually seen any evidence of that personally uh, 
it, and it to me it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense but you know that's one that's my opinion but other people have different opinions yeah there's definitely a there's definitely a it seems to be a a, a rallying cry around you know all we need is a, a wet spring you know we've had this this string of really dry uh, springs on the ppr and we get one or two wet springs we'll be back we'll, we'll numbers will be great again hunting will be great again and then we'll ride that until the next dry spell because it, obviously it goes in cycles and and all that and we are in a pretty dry cycle uh that's led we to are in a, more productivity we are in a fairly, dry, fairly dry cycle although you know it's not, it's not like the 80s it it's not like the 80s and well you know there are parts of canada that are awfully awfully dry and they have been for quite a while but you know, if you continue to shoot the birds every year and the breeding population keeps coming down and down and down, it takes longer for that breeding population to build up once you do get water. Mm-hmm. You know, do I just don't see what it would hurt to to be a little more conservative. Are there really, I mean, do you think all the hunters would quit if we went to 40 days and four ducks? No, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm not sure any of them would quit. I think there's more of them quitting because they've had all these years where they've been told that there's so many ducks out there, we can have 60 and six, and yet they go out and they never see a duck. You know, we average one duck per hunter per per hunt. Right, right, right. Yeah. When you look at the masses, for sure. Um, Yeah. We we manage right now, AHM is managing for maximizing opportunity. Yes. And I tend to believe that if we if we managed for maximum resource, hunter satisfaction would go up and then you would yeah. be retaining and introducing more people into the sport. I believe that too. And uh I've argued that when they first started, you know, talking about AHM, I was in part of those discussions and I argued that that we should put the resource first and nope. They decided that uh having maximum opportunity would uh Bring in more hunters and more dollars. Well, that, yeah, no doubt. Um, uh, one quick question here, or maybe it's not a quick question, but maybe one one last question. Uh, okay, we're talking about you said forty and four. You know the the frameworks are sixty and six, forty five and three, and thirty and two. Yeah, uh, would thirty? Would you... and, I think it's I think it's forty and four and thirty and three. Yeah, I, I'm probably but talking mallards. There's, um, there's almost. <laughs> yeah, you're talking mallards. Uh, so you're right. That that would be, it'd be forty and three and thirty and two. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what are your thoughts on? Okay, keep a sixty day season because you lose X amount of days to seventy five degrees. You lose X amount of days to torrential rain snow everything's frozen full moon all the things that screw with duck hunting what do you think you go 60 and we cut it back to three mallards or to, or is it is the mantra days kill ducks is that is that legit days kill duck. you know like i said the average guy in minnesota kills one duck on a hunt so if you went to 60 and three there uh our harvest really wouldn't go down very much if you went to 30 and three, now that the harvest would go down. Yeah. 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 But, but it makes you wonder or makes you kind of try to determine whether, even though we're, we're in the, we're in the same flyway, Minnesota and Arkansas, 
But does Arkansas need a different? I mean, because we're we're you know we're the ones still selling a hundred thousand duck stamps, and and we're still the one you know where people travel to, and it's a destination, and and we're we're killing. I don't know. Just a few years ago, we were killing three quarters of a million ducks. Now we're we're somewhere around three four hundred thousand. I'm talking mallards again, yep. but um, just because that's the primary chase. Uh, you know, I wonder if Arkansas needs to be a be a separate deal. Uh, you know, Casey and I've had this discussion on white fronts because nowhere is our white fronts hunted like they are here. Um, with the amount of pressure that's put on them and, and the volume of, of hunters and the size of the groups and, and everything else, just because we, we, we winter so many of them now, but, um, I don't know. It just kind of makes you wonder, do, do, does Arkansas need the same rules as Minnesota, even though we're in the Mississippi flyway together? Um, I don't think that it would ever fly to have separate regulations for different states. and. Only because the people that that are are managing our ducks just they go nuts when when people have different regulations. Although yeah. we've allowed different regulations at times and nobody seems to care. Like wood ducks, special wood duck seasons, you know. I mean, why does why do some states get to have special wood duck seasons while other states don't? I love the idea that, yeah. that uh, oh, well, you know, we get a special wood duck season because we're just shooting our wood ducks. Well, <laughs> Minnesota could say that, well, we should have a special mallard season, a special blue wing season, a special wood duck season, a special teal season, a special gadwall season, and we just shoot our ducks. That's a good point. Uh, Brent, I thought that was a good point, too, about the, the different framework. I, I agree. I don't think you'll really see it, but it's definitely – a, a hunting day in Arkansas is not necessarily the same as a, a hunting day in Minnesota. Uh, they're definitely not all created equal. But I, I've wondered why, on the framework side, I mean, because I've heard that too. You know, days kill ducks. Why is it the bag limit and duration of the season? You know, inversely related. We go three and thirty or six and sixty. Why is it not the opposite? Why not thirty and six or sixty and three? Um, if it's the day that's doing the damage, well, we're going to hunt more days. Why don't we shoot fewer ducks? And, and as from a hunter perspective, I don't have any more fun or any more satisfaction with a six duck limit than I did a three duck limit. Um, you know, I, I'm sure there are people that are, they get to hunt longer, they get more enjoyment, but it doesn't change much for me. Um, anyway, that's my, my no, opinion on that. I agree with you. Um, and I don't know why, I guess it's the, the thought that, if we're going to be liberal, let's be liberal. And if we're going to be conservative, let's be conservative. But yeah, like I said, you know, if, if it's adaptive harvest, why don't we try things like that to adapt and see if it actually works? Yeah. There's that key word there. Adapt. Adapt. Yeah. And you know, 26 years of the same exact regulations isn't very adaptive. No, it's not. <laughs> you, you say that, that a day of duck hunting in Minnesota isn't the same as a day of duck hunting in Arkansas. And, and you're right. Uh, the guys in Minnesota would probably say, you know, Arkansas should probably only have, have a 30 day season and three ducks while we can have 60 and six, because we'll shoot less ducks than they do anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that, and I think that's a, that's a fair point. I don't, I'm not saying I'm lobbying for that, but I, but I get that if, if Arkansas has the most hunters and the most pressure and all this stuff, 
then you've got to think that there's there's more harvest being done here than other places. So, it's well, you. what you really have is you have the entire flyway into two or three states, yeah. and that's that's what you have. You have huge concentrations of birds there, which is great. You know that's that's the way it's always been, and and there's nothing wrong with that. It makes Arkansas a destination. But what happens when your mallard harvest goes down to a hundred thousand or fifty thousand? It's gonna yeah. really affect your uh, your tourist industry. Uh, that's yeah. a fact. Yeah, yeah, and that's the trend. That's the trend we're on. I mean, we're we're, yep. we're backsliding. Um, but so is everybody else. We had a, a, an episode earlier in the year, and I, yeah, I'm, not to bring up Kansas and Oklahoma again, but it's just this perception. And they had terrible seasons last year. Terrible. Yeah. Uh, significant decline. So uh, you know, it's it, it, it's a this is a. <laughs> A North American thing. This is not a man. Ducks don't come to Arkansas anymore. Right. True. True. There may be some. There's a there's a grouping of ducks that don't make it here anymore. They they don't push as far south as they used to. But it's this is a this is a North American thing that's going on. That's that's a little scary. And hence having you on the show to talk about. Man, maybe we need to maybe we need to look at some of this stuff again. It's really scary, you know. And if you if you really start digging into some of the harvest data. And uh, some of the breeding population data, um, and some of the wintering, uh, midwinter data, the the surveys from the different states. You know, I, I'm of the opinion that we may have less mallards at this point than we've had since the 1950s ever. Uh, mallard Yikes. population just isn't isn't good. I mean, Minnesota last year we shot less mallards than we've ever shot, and in fact. They've never been anything but the number one duck in the state until last year, and they were number three. Oh, man. Wow. Our harvest was 62,000 mallards last year. Well, I, you know, we hear that all the time, and I, I know Louisiana does too. You know, mallards don't, are not coming as many. They're not getting here, or they, they don't migrate to Louisiana. But if you, if you put all these birds back in the flyway that are missing, yes. if we go back to those elevated numbers, then they migrate. Now, I don't right. think it's as much a, a climate shift. It's just the abundance of ducks. They I, have to move because they've used up resources everywhere else. Correct. You know, I mean, you know, people always say, oh, well, the ducks are still up north because it's because it's so mild there. Well, you know, it's very mild right here in Minnesota right now. But I was walking on a lake fishing the other day. So there's not many ducks on a lake that's frozen like a brick. So <laughs> they're gone. Yeah. Mm hmm. But but where are they? <laughs> yeah, that's that's Lee Joe's question. Where where the <laughs> hell are they? <laughs> I, I don't think it's the question of where are they. The question is is are they? And I don't there think they are. Yeah yeah yeah. I mean I I think that's what we're you know now that people are getting this out in the open and talking about it and separating it from the perceptions that social media creates and and having discussions like this, it's starting to you're starting to connect some dots that. Uh, the ducks, they're not somewhere else. They're just not. <laughs> they're just not. They're just and, not. You know, I mean, when you think about the kinds of habitat losses that we've had, you know, when you're talking about 60 to 70% of the grassland gone, 60 to 70% of the wetlands gone, uh, pesticides, every wetland up here now has a, a, this stuff called hybrid cattail in it, which is a is detrimental to ducks. It grows much deeper into the wetlands. It grows much thicker so that ducklings can't get through it. 
you know, we, we, we have pesticides that are, that are in the wetlands. We have invertebrates that have disappeared. Uh, we, I don't know if you know what amphipods are. Those are the freshwater shrimp that the, yeah, that yeah. the guys used to love to eat. Those are pretty well gone from our wetlands, especially the big ones that the scop really like to eat. Uh, it just, everything out there is anti-ducks. We have more and more abandoned buildings on the prairies, which get filled with raccoons and skunks and foxes. The predator numbers on the prairie are probably higher than they've ever been. Uh, so, you know, the idea that there's more ducks now than there was in the 50s and 60s and 70s just can't be yeah yeah Yeah. well i think that's that's what we're saying Um, and all the way down the flyway you know i mean what's happened to wetlands all the way up and down the flyway there's more wires there's more cars there's there's more pollution it just on and on and on and none of it is in the favor of ducks so where do they come from yeah that's uh that's scary to really step back and think about it but um but Dave, this has been an awesome discussion. Um, we really appreciate you coming on today yep. and and kind no of hashing through some of these nope. some of these things and taking a little bit different perspective than the than the you know the you know famous Animal House Kevin Bacon where he's you know everything is fine everything's yep. fine. <laughs> uh, can I, can uh, I bring up one other thing? Do we yeah, have sure, time? sure. Thing? Okay. Yeah. Remember uh, back a little. A little while ago in our discussion, you talked about radio transmitter ducks and and how they follow those birds around. Yeah. You know, we've been doing that for a, for a number of years, and there's been a number of studies in the South and, and in other places on radio telemetry birds. And you know what kills ducks, what they find with those radios? Hunters kill ducks. Almost nothing else kills ducks. The ducks die during the hunting season. And very, very few of them ever die after the hunting season's over. So, you know, we talked about additive versus compensatory. It's hard to imagine that no ducks would die from anything but hunting if it was so compensatory. I mean, something should be killing some of the ducks. Yeah, yeah. It's just a, you know, I, I get... A little tired of people saying that that hunting makes absolutely no difference and that that no ducks, you know, the only thing that that they're all compensatory. It just I don't see the evidence of it. It just can't be. I just it can't be the case. I don't I don't believe so. Of course, that's only my opinion. So, Well, I think that's a really interesting, too, as as a hunter, you know, most people. They look at the bee pod, look at the maypon, they, they look at these data points that are put out and they take it as absolute fact because it's science, right? Right. I don't I don't think that as many people understand that there's a, a lot of differing opinions in the community of how these things are figured out, how this data yes. is collected and, and how it becomes to be a quote unquote fact. So uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on and, and shedding some light on, on your opinions and some of the things that, that Brent and I are share opinion and are very concerned about. So I, I appreciate that. I also want to make it clear that I love to hunt ducks and I still hunt ducks. So, you know, I'm not anti-hunting in any way, shape or form. I just think that uh, maybe it's time to be a little more conservative. Well, so I'll, I'll defend you there too. I, I think guys like us 
are maybe more pro hunting than than the guy who's ready to to kill the very last duck on the planet. We yep. want to see this sport live on in perpetuity, not right come to a screeching halt. So there you go. That's perfect. Yep. Yeah. Well, Dave, I, I appreciate it. Uh, we may we may gather some more questions and circle back with you some other time. This has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you coming on. Well, I certainly appreciate you having me on. So you guys have a nice day. All right. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks to all our listeners. Thanks for, for tuning in. Uh, you can check us out on the standardsportsman.com or on social media at the standard sportsman and anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks, everybody. The standard sportsman podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. From the people who brought you the first motion goose decoy in 1994 comes the first motion silhouette decoy. Once again, Higdon Outdoors has changed the game. I got a chance to get my hands on some of these the other day, and I was blown away. When I first heard they were in the works, I was a little skeptical. I didn't really see how you could have all the benefits of a silhouette, like lightweight decoys, the space savings, the ease of setup, and not lose something with adding a motion system. But as soon as I put the first stake in the ground, I knew they got it right. These rigs have amazing motion in the lightest breeze, and they sacrifice nothing. I've been chasing specs for over three decades, back when a spec call was even hard to find. It's amazing how far we've come in spec hunting, and Higdon Outdoors continues to pave the way. Revolutionary footwear from Light Boots, the lightest waterproof boot ever made. Your first hands-on feed-in introduction to Light Boots is a jaw-dropping experience. With a pair of men's 11s weighing in at less than 26 ounces, Light Boots are the benchmark in ultra-lightweight toughness, next-generation comfort, and ease of use. Whether you're all-weather hunting and fishing, farm and ranching, or home and gardening, Light Boots are guaranteed game-changers. Now available in youth sizes.